Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. So the way this evening will run is that uh, we're going to, uh, we have two writers on this bill. Um, we'll be uh, introducing Salvador Placencia first, and then after that, uh, John Brandon will be reading. So we're uh, always happy to have Salvador in the store. Uh, Salvador Placencia was born in Guadalajara, Mexico, and now lives in Los Angeles. Did I just sound ethnic right now? <laughs> Love that. He is a graduate of Whittier College and holds an MFA from Syracuse University. The People of Paper is his first novel. We're happy to have you. Come on up, Salvador. stash of books, but somebody stole them. Um, I need to improvise. So much for that. <laughs> have all my junk. I'm going to leave a mess. Oh, you're going to reshelve them. A job, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're strategically placed there, though. I don't need that one. Oh. What is that? Is that Deathly Hollow? What is it? No, it's half blood. I thought it was on top. No, I need. I need. I don't know what I needed. I think I needed. Order the feet. Yeah, I don't need that. What is that? Half blood prints. Oh, that's what I need. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna spoil it. There's a lot of setup for one joke. <laughs> Anyhow, um, I'm happy to be here at Skylight. Um, I remember reading Brandon's first book. Um, second book got sort of, I had, I had the book, and then I gave it away, I go pick it up, and then suddenly it disappeared, like for two months? Or am I making that up? A month? How long did it disappear for? Yeah, about a month. About a month, anyways. So I'm sort of stuck in between. So I haven't read, the, I haven't read that one, but I, I can vouch for Arkansas. Uh, <laughs> I can, I mean, uh, anyhow, but I, his book is this, sort of this book that you read it once, and you get sort of this great crime story. And then after, I sort of always pick it up to get energized about sentences. And I always read it, and the sentences always sort of really excite me. Um, so I'm really happy to be here um, with, for John and with John. Um, I'm not going to read, because I haven't written a book in five years. So I feel like I'm not going to read stuff I haven't written. Um, so, so I'm just going to sort of talk about this introduction I sort of got stuck writing. Um, I have this friend, when he gets drunk, he says he's a pediatrician, and he sort of just convinces people he's a fantastic liar. When I get drunk, I talk about obscure French novels I've never read. Um, and usually, usually it's not an issue, except one time there was this, this editor, publisher. I'm like, Mark Support, oh yeah, I love that book. And she's like, do you really? I'm like, yeah. He's like, nobody's read it. Yeah, he said, yeah. She's like, it's been out of print for 43 years. So do you want to write an introduction for it? I'm not sure I wrote an introduction for it. <laughs> so, so I sort of forgot about it. Um, and then two months later, she sent me this sort of proposal, like, you ready for the introduction? I'm like, okay, sure, fine. So you get this free book, you get excited. Then I read it, and it's the most sort of boring, hor horrible book ever. And now I have to write this introduction to it. Um, 
So today I'm just going to write the intro. I'm going to I'm going to sort of tell you about this introduction. I'm going to tell you about the introduction that I sort of submitted, and we're sort of in between um, what's going to happen. But before that, I want to talk about your favorite books. Um, this is supposed to be um, the Fountainhead, but they're out of stock. So just pretend it's the Fountainhead. <laughs> And this is supposed to be Slaughterhouse-Five, which are also out of stock. <laughs> this is Geek Love, which you two had. Um, and this is Half-Blood Prince, uh, and Dumbledore dies in it. If you didn't know that, get with it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so before I talk about Mark Sapporo's composition number one, the French novel I'm supposed to introduce, I want to talk about your favorite novels. Um, but I want to talk about the anatomy of your favorite novels. So this is, so this is um, the Fountainhead. Um, this is the front cover. Um, this is the spine. This is the back cover. Um, and the way these books work is you sort of open them up, and there's some text, and you sort of read it this way. You read it this, and then you flip the page, and then you continue reading it, um, and then there's a sort of, well, gotta zoom in a little. Somewhere in there. That's actually over here. Right. So there's a sort of, there's this digit, which is this coordinate, and it's, and it's page, 15. And what these coordinates do is sort of allow you to, to cite for academic purposes, um, to read along. There's a passage you like. You say, it's on coordinate 35, and you can sort of refer back to it. Um, and, the, and, the, and the book flips in a sort of unidirectional way, and it goes from, from left to right. But anatomically, the way this works is this is called the versal. This is called the gutter. I used to call it the furrow. I thought it was more pastoral, but it's incorrect. It's called the gutter. And this is called the recto. Um, and the trick is recto, right, right, right side of the page. Um, this is called the forage, which sounds like porridge. Um, so remember those things. And then, but, so I have this sort of mixed message. So I think the book is, in a way, the best narrative machine we have. It contains a universe. It's sort of self-sufficient, self-sustained. It needs no energy source, no sort of telecommunications infrastructure. And you can take it to space. You can take it anywhere, and it works. Um, it's sturdy. You can catalog it. It does all these great things. But it's also pretty quaint. Because I think part of it, what it does, is it reinforces the time, the sort of very um, traditional and almost, I don't know, this very conventional time-space continuum because it works linearly, there's numbers that sequentially go up. So it does all these things to sort of uh, reinforce the way we conceive of time. But within it, there's all these sort of tricks. Um, so these little, they have these, these things called asterisks, um, which are sort of initially used um, in feudal times to sort of mark when someone was born in, in family genealogists. So it'd be like, and then it migrated to sort of prose. And then it became like this sort of temporary portal where 
or someone to put an asterisk here, and then you have to jump to the bottom of the page over here. Uh, so then I was just reading Volman, and he has this part about, he started with this woman, he's sort of looking at this woman, appreciating her. He's like, this certain part of her body is like a flower, then it has an asterisk. And then you go to the bottom of the page over here somewhere. And then it's Mussolini talking about this tribe, and he would sort of, he would drop these aerial torpedoes on them and watch the bomb bloom. So it does, it goes from this woman's anatomy to Mussolini dropping a bomb, and then you teleport it back, and then you continue with the story. But if you want more sustained sort of teleportation across time, you put three asterisks together, and then you can jump across time and space. And then, so this is a longer, more sustained form of teleportation that the grammar allows you to do. This is a period. This stops time. <laughs> Uh, I'm not really sure what that does, but. <laughs> I feel more like Carrot Top than the writer. <laughs> anyway, so, but this is Mark Sapota's composition number one, which is a 1947 novel. Um, this is a French man. He published 10 novels. None of them made it to America, but this one. And in a way, it's, an, it's sort of this broken novel that is missing the anatomical spark part called the spine. And the spine is important because it holds everything together so you don't lose a chapter at the coffee shop or on those long horseback rides known as the Crusades. Um, <laughs> but it really confuses this book because There's no page numbers. There's no real order. And then one of the chief advantages of the codex, of the bound book, is that you get to exploit bo both sides of the page. And here, he leaves it blank. So it's not really working. So this is sort of an androgynous. It's not versatile. It's not rectal. There's no pagination. If you teach this, you can't say go to page 23 because it doesn't exist. Um, and because most of the bibliographical, bibliographical terms, nomenclature, is oriented in relation to the binding. And when there's no binding, all this sort of falls apart. So I was always interested in this novel because I've heard of this novel with no binding. It was like sort of this abstracted thing. I'm like, oh yeah, it's, it's phenomenal, awesome. And then you read it, and it's just about women's legs. Um, <laughs> and it's really hard to get excited about a novel that has very sort of boring prose. So I wrote this essay where I got to 900 words and hadn't said a single thing about the, about the story. And it's going to sort of remain that way. Um, because in many ways, it's a forgettable novel, aside from the fact of its sort of contraption, which is a sort of broken. Anyways, but there was this other British writer in B.S. Johnson who, re who read a review of this novel but never actually read the book. He's like, that sounds awesome. I'm going to write my own book like that. And he wrote. Maybe I left it in my... Oh, oh there we go. 
And he wrote The Unfortunates, which is, looks like a novel, but then you open it up. But he wasn't as sort of cavalier. He said, I'm going to give you some guidance. So he has this part called First. Then he makes you shuffle it. And then he has a section called Last, which I can't find. But also, he paginates. So that's page one. But there's many page ones. But at least you can say, that dingbat looks like a panda bear, page one. So he gives you some sort of ways to navigate it. And this is actually a great emotional, traditional novel. It just happens to have sort of this loose binding. Uh, one sort of footnote. Um, in the Hebrew, in, in Semitic languages, Asian languages, Korean being the exception, it's sort of, this sort of, you know how I tell you that trick, right, means recto. It doesn't really work on these other novels because it actually gets flipped. So the verso becomes the recto, the recto becomes the verso because you're reading in the opposite direction. So those things are actually universal but are dependent on the relative to the culture's um, to the culture's reading practices. Anyhow, so sort of my, my quack theory is that I think the narrative, time and space, the way we conceive it, are actually bound up in the way that we materially see the book. So these are some French flaps. I'm not really sure why they're called French flaps. So I would sort of think like, do we write and, and sort of think of narrative in this way because the book in a way is contained in this book in this way. So that I always sort of, and this conveniently has French flaps, so it works really well. That joke doesn't work because I haven't told you. Oh, there we go. This is Freytag's dramatic triangle, right? So you have exposition, um, rising action, climax, falling action, denouement. And it looks just like my book. And the sort of sequential order of narrative and of plot, in a way, is fixed. These things have to happen in a certain sequential order because the book is bound this way. And what supported this, despite writing really boring, bad prose, is that he excites you about the possibility of the book breaking down and doing these sort of things. Um, and what gets stranger about this book, I was trying to research it. First, this is an English translation, but most of, his, most of the things supporta are in French. I don't know French, um, so that didn't help. But everything I could find, everybody talks about this book. People are interested in hypertext, organic, organic literature, I don't even know what that is. Um, literature that gets sort of reformulated, shape-shifted, and everybody talks about this book. But nobody ever gives any evidence of the fact they read it. <laughs> but maybe they have. It's just so boring and stupid, you don't want to talk about it. Because I've read it, and yet I've told you nothing about it. Um, anyhow, so that's the introduction I turned in. And there's... <laughs> and sort of the moral of the story is don't lie about obscure French out-of-print novels when you're drunk. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to leave that for you there, Brian. I actually thought that was quite fascinating. <laughs> Thank you so much. So you know you are a book geek when you're like, wow, look at that.
Look at that, right? Then we'd be I didn't know we'd be talking about Freytag's pyramid, but that was really that was really great. So um, <laughs> follow that. <laughs> follow that, Mr. Brandon. So uh, we're very happy to have um, John Brandon here. John Brandon was raised on the Gulf Coast of Florida. During the writing of this book, he worked at a Frito-Lay warehouse and a, Cisco, a, and a Cisco warehouse. During another part of the writing of this book, he was unemployed. During the re revising, he, he was the John and Renee Grisham Fellow in Creative Writing at the University of Mississippi. Mississippi. His favorite recreational activity is watching college football. This is his second book. The first was Arkansas, also a novel. Please welcome. John Brandon. When you're a McSweeney's writer, you never know when you're going to have to follow something unfollowable. Uh, in my, my first tour uh, for Arkansas, my opening act was the youngest sword swallower in the world. <laughs> That's not a joke. I don't know if he's still the youngest sword swallower, because that was a couple of years ago. He was 18 at the time, so he's still a good chance that he is. Um, so let's not think of this reading from a book as a big letdown. Let's just think of it as we're going to take a rest, OK? <laughs> um, OK, so I'm, I'm going to read to you about Mr. Hibma. Um, one of the three main characters. This is um, relatively toward the beginning, I guess, exposition on the um, triangle there. And uh, you haven't missed much, but maybe you want to know that Mr. Hibma pretends to despise computers. Um, and the other thing is that he's a middle school teacher. And um, all the middle school teachers are supposed to sponsor a club or a coach. Uh, sport and he's avoided this so far but he's finally gotten cornered and they're gonna make him coach eighth grade girls basketball um, soon so that ought to do it mr. Hibma assigned a family history project he told the kids to choose one side of their families whichever was less boring and track it back as far as they could they would present the history orally and wouldn't hand anything in those librarians get paid the same as teachers do, Mr. Hibma said. Tell them to quit fiddling with paper clips and show you the genealogy section. And if you have to use the internet for this, don't let me know about it. Mr. Hibma went to his podium and began lecturing about assassination. He stayed broadly in the area of geography by informing the kids where certain assassinations had taken place, how the act of assassination had impacted different regions of the world. Assassination, he said, helps everyone know what side they're on. It cuts through the shenanigans of voting and impeaching. Mr. Hibma let this statement sink in, then touched on general points about revolution. He wanted the kids to understand that in the United States, capitalism had become so monstrous that even the idea of revolution could be marketed and sold. Protest against a corporation could be sold by that corporation. Artists and moralists could no longer make their own revolutions. They had to depend on the poor. The problem was that the poor weren't poor. The poor had frozen pizza and cable TV and cigarettes. Hell, the poor had real pizza and DVDs and weed. Mr. Hibma could drone for 20 minutes without thinking about what he was saying. There was nothing to do but observe the kids. It was like watching monkeys at the zoo. The scratching, the gnawing, the use of simple tools. One of the kiss-ass girls stared at Vince, the gum kid. 
Vince stared over at Shelby. Shelby stared at the back of Toby. Toby stared down at the pages of a book about, it seemed, track and field, reading about, it appeared, pole vault. Pole vault, Mr. Hibb asked, interrupting himself. Toby looked up. I didn't know they did pole vault in middle school. If you want to do it, they have to let you. Those two huge girls that failed can throw the shot in the discus further than any of the guys, and I can't run fast without someone chasing me, so I chose pole vault. They can throw farther, Mr. Hibma said. It's not even close. No, I mean, you said further, but that's for intangible distances. For measurable distances, it's farther. Okay. <laughs> would you like to read that book later, or would you like detention? I have to read this now, Toby said. We could schedule your detentions in advance. We could get a calendar with humorous pictures of puppies and fill it in from now till the end of the year. Toby didn't answer. Where was I, said Mr. Hibma. I was about to tell you that the most rebellious thing a youngster can do is sit outdoors and listen to the birds. Sitting indoors in detention is about the least. Mr. Hibma, without warning, walked out of the classroom. He did this now and again to shake the kids up, to force them to deal with freedom. <laughs> Sometimes he returned in 30 seconds, and sometimes he stayed gone the rest of the period. <laughs> he strolled to the end of the hall to the big windows. Live oaks, mockingbirds, a hill, or at least what passed for a hill in Florida. Mr. Hibma watched the groundskeeper for a time, jealous. The guy sat on that grazing tractor, letting his thoughts find him, watching the uncut section of lawn agreeably dwindle, spread a little mulch, eat a sandwich. Mr. Hibma went to the lounge. He chugged someone's soda. Because it made Mrs. Connor angry, he used the ladies' restroom. He pissed on the seat and buried the bottle of hand soap at the bottom of the trash. He looked into the mirror and said aloud, I am 29 years old. I am a middle school teacher. I live in northwest central Florida. I inherited money from an old Hungarian man I picked up groceries for. I had a couple lengthy talks with him and sometimes walked his dog. Mr. Hibma cleared his throat. He looked at himself resolutely. Sir, you spent one-third of an inheritance on whores. <laughs> he came out of the bathroom. The tick of the clock had an echo. In three minutes, the bell would ring and the lounge would fill with teachers. They would brag about how they dealt with their problem students. They would brag about what they'd said to pushy parents, brag about their students' test scores. They would brag about their weekends, about their houses and spouses and whatever else was handy to brag about. We'll do a little more, Mr. Hibma. And then, um, then we'll take questions. Um, so somebody think of a couple questions because if nobody has a question, as a group, it's very demoralizing. And we, we just won't feel good the rest of the night, okay? So you have a couple minutes while I read this other part. Mr. Hibma managed to stretch the genealogy presentations into a three-day affair, giving him a break from lecturing and from compiling trivia fodder. There were only a few kids left who hadn't dispensed the uneventful lives of their recent ancestors. Mr. Hibma was seated low behind his desk, studying the basketball binders. He'd have to rename these plays. Instead of yelling out Ivy League schools, his point guard would bark mixed drinks and famous assassins. Mr. Hibma found a rule book in one of the binders and a list of basketball terms. Pick and roll, he knew. Backdoor cut. What the hell was a matchup zone? Mr. Hibma looked up and called on Shelby. She never volunteered for anything because she didn't want to be a kiss-ass, but she was always prepared. She got up and spoke about her mother's family. Her great-great, uh, her great-grandparents had owned a cane shop back in Belgium. 
Their daughter, Shelby's grandmother, had come to visit the States, fallen in love with a history teacher, and never returned to Europe. She and the history teacher had hosted a series of foster children before finally conceiving Shelby's mother. One of the foster children had become famous in art circles, a woman named Janet Stubblefield, who had dropped out of high school to become a hippie. She became expert at constructing mobiles out of old boots, and against her will, she developed a following. People from all over began making art out of shoes. The whole business put Aunt Janet off. She moved to rural Tennessee and became a hermit and died in middle age. She told everyone to stay away, that it was important to her to die alone. Shelby dropped her note cards in the trash and sat down, light applause playing about the room. She hadn't mentioned her mother. She'd chosen her mother's side, but she'd cut the history short. A kid could really get sick of having a dead parent, Mr. Hibma imagined. These kids were all sad or crazy, and most of them had reason to be. Mr. Hibma asked for the next presenter, and a girl named Irene, who'd worn a sweater set and heavy makeup, got up and said some things and retook her seat. Toby was next, the only one who hadn't gone. He'd chosen his father's family, the family whose name he bore, McNurse. They'd moved from Ireland to Canada at the turn of the century, a well-off family who'd chosen to immigrate to Canada instead of the United States because it was harder to get into Canada. Most of them had died in the 40s in an accident, an avalanche. Mr. Hibma was sure Toby was lying. He was testing Mr. Hibma, seeing if he would call him on his fake history, but there was also a chance Toby didn't know a thing about his father's family. Toby may never have met the man, or maybe Toby's history was nothing anyone would want to know. Maybe making a history up was the wisest option. Well, Mr. Hibma would give Toby an A+. My father was a snake researcher who drove a big Cadillac, Toby said. He met my mother while driving across the country. He only slept with her because he'd promised himself he'd sleep with a woman every night of his road trip, and she was the only woman not spoken for in Farmington, New Mexico. <laughs> Toby sat and Mr. Hibmer replaced him in front of the class. He told the kids to give themselves a hand, then to line up and receive a poster. I've got mermaids, he said. Fletch, too. <laughs> Except you, Thomas. Thomas, a kid with a widow's peak whose parents farmed fancy tomatoes, gaped at Mr. Hibma. In your notes, you had pages printed from the internet. I could see the site info at the top and bottom. You'll be getting a C. Everyone else gets an A minus. Toby, you get an A plus. Best presentation of the year. <laughs> Alone in the classroom, Mr. Hibma returned to his binders. He wondered if they would take the job away from him if the team performed dismally enough. He wondered if he could be stripped of his whistle for encouraging dirty play. He wondered if he was expected to hug the girls, if he was supposed to give pregame talks in the girls' locker room. He hoped they were all ugly. That would make things easier. He flipped the last page of the last binder, which detailed something UNLV used to run called the amoeba defense. He found a single folded sheet tucked in the binder's pocket. The paper was stiff. In red ink were the words hyenas and twin towers and a game plan that called for the other team's good player to be triple teamed while the two remaining defenders stayed under the basket, one on each block, to rebound the misses of the other team's bad players. Hyenas and twin towers required two enormous girls who didn't mind being the girls who stood under the basket. Mr. Hibma wondered if the previous coach had ever implemented this strategy. There were two girls at the school who fit the bill, the girls who'd failed, who threw the shot in the discus. Mr. Hibma liked the idea of a game plan. He wasn't sure he'd ever had one for anything. Thanks, I'll stop there.
So questions? Mm -hmm. do, you, uh, do you have like a sports metaphor you can apply to after writing this wonderful book, what happened like when you felt that like when the New York Times was going to decide to write it on the cover of their like, book page? Is that like pretty awesome or did, was that hard to come by or was that like a whole new one or something like that? Um, I, I would say I would compare writing to sports in that it's best not to worry about the, the New York Times or the final score. You just have to keep playing every play as hard as you can, and maybe you'll do okay. <laughs> yeah? Now that it's all done, if someone, if they were to make a books on tape, uh, would you ideally, in a perfect world, want to read it yourself, or maybe you could choose someone? Um, I, I wouldn't want to read it myself. It just seems choose? difficult. Who would be the narrator? Um, maybe like Gilbert Gottfried or something. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody I've never heard of, you know, who has a great voice. Sure. <laughs> Anybody else? Uh, oh, go ahead. No, I taught high school <laughs> for. Uh, I only made it a semester, and I just crashed and burned, and uh, I couldn't do anything about it. I just, I just, you know, failed and quit. <laughs> Um, so, Mr. Hibma, unlike me, you know, wants to stay in there and fight and, you know, throughout the book he tries to become a good teacher, um, which I didn't really do, you know, but he, and he can do other, you know, evil things that I can't do either. Um, no, I mean, accidentally maybe, not, not, you know, with evil intent like that. Um, yeah, yeah uh, how did you find yourself publishing with um, when I wrote Arkansas, the first book, I um, I just sent it to their, you know, open submissions, uh, the first 25 pages, and then they asked me to see the rest, and they wanted to do it, and I didn't have an agent or anything, so you know, no, nobody else was gonna want it. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you take jobs with a mind to researching for a book ever? No, no, but I um. My my wife um, is an occupational therapist, so she got on with one of these traveling companies, which is why I moved around so much with her. Um, but this is when the economy was good, so I could just go to the temp agency and tell them I'm not picky. I want a you know I want a job, and the next day I would be somewhere. I, I never got to choose really, um, but the traveling more I think it helps more with settings than like the jobs different jobs really help. They're all kind of similar, you know. Things go in boxes and then they go on pallets and they go in trucks. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, the only ones that weren't just like that, just like I just said, were um, I worked at a, a um, lumber mill in Oregon where they made wooden arrows, which, you know, the only call for that that I can think of is when I was in middle school, there was an archery unit and they have to use these wooden arrows with blunt ends, you know, not you know real arrows that would kill someone. Um, so I think that was their only customer was some kind of middle school somewhere. Um, but it was that one was different. I mean, yeah, the rest were kind of made diploma frames. The factory made diploma frames. It's like I don't know. I, I just stood in this one room and just cut these boards. Supposed to be the right length every time, but you know they'd always be a little off, and they just—they didn't care. They just get rid of them, cut more. So. 
that's all that that's what comes to mind <laughs> yeah you've got your two main male characters toby and mr hidden kind of like trying to project it like they're the ultimate like rebels and badasses and stuff but they have these secrets you know like toby's got his like secret fortress and then hidden has got all his rage like underneath like what he does privately how did it become that shelby is like the one who just is the character who just does what she wants outwardly and inwardly i mean it's just it's not really a question but we just like we talk about like how like where shelby fits in like with the the kind of the secrets and repression. Kind of in the yeah, no, I think you're right. Shelby's Shelby's kind of um, even though she's acting out all the time, it's it seems like it's in a healthy way because it's not. It's just kind of it's like she's in touch with her emotions. I guess a lot more than Toby is. She just kind of something occurs to her. She just does it. It's not doesn't seem to be coming from horrible dark place. Um, yeah, Toby and Mr. Hibb are kind of similar in that they're both trying, comes a point in the book where they're both trying to be as normal as they can, and it's hard for them. I think that was good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks guys. That was terrific. So what will happen is that I'll, I'll push all this stuff out of the way, put a table here where he will uh, be. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashling and Arlo. You can check them out at MySpace or Facebook or at the iTunes Music Store. Thank you for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.